Welcome to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's Word. Today is going to be real special. I'm excited. I want to talk to you about this idea of eye contact. Now, in our society, uh, making eye contact has a lot of different connotations. For one, sometimes we'll say, hey, you know, I need you to make eye contact with me, and it can be an intimidating way, like, look at my eyes. Look at me when I'm talking to you. You know, as someone who works with young people and young men, I'll, I'll come in and shake their hand for the first time. They're like, hey, how you doing? How's it going? What's up? And you just kind of hold their hand for a little bit and say, no, 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 look at me in my eyes. When we look at someone in, our, in their eyes, it's a sign of respect it could be a sign of, of saying, I acknowledge you, I see you. Looking someone in the eyes can even be an act of intimacy. I remember when my wife and I got married, I didn't care what that pastor was saying at the altar. I'm just looking her in her eyes. And she's looking back at me in her eyes. Eye contact is huge. I have this dog named Charlie, okay? My dog Charlie is really well behaved. I can get him to sit. I can get him to go lay down. Uh, I can get him to, that's about it, actually. He can sit and he can lay down. <laughs> but he's really, really well-behaved. Uh, well he's very well-trained as long as I have his eyes. If he's making eye contact with me, man, he can do those two things better than any other dog. The problem is I can never get his attention with his eyes. See, eye contact, what we look at, what we fixate on, what we focus on, really does matter. My wife used to be a teacher, and, and she would always tell me this phrase that she would say with her students, one, two, three, eyes on. One, two, eyes on. See, we all graduated. We made it. We did it. And so this idea of what we look at, this idea of what we fix our eyes on is what I want to talk about today. I, I'm not going to do this experiment, but I want you just to imagine that I asked you to turn to your neighbor for about 15 seconds, don't say a word, and just stare them directly in the eyes. Don't do it. Some of you are already doing it. We're not going to do it. I know there's a single brother out there like, come on, pastor, please, please, this is my chance. This is my chance. But eye contact is powerful. What we look at, what we see in one another is powerful. And so today, we're going to talk about this as we look into Genesis 16. Now, Genesis 16 is going to be the story of Abram and Sarai, who would later become Abraham and Sarah, whom God has made a covenant with to give their descendants, that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. And so we see this story happening, but I actually want to focus our attention and our eyes not on Abram or on Sarai, but on Hagar. Hagar, who was a slave uh, in this story. So here we are in Genesis 16, starting in verse 1, and it says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave, a slave named Hagar. She said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said, so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. 
Now, I want to pause for just a moment because whenever we're reading the Old Testament, it's important to have this reminder that though the Bible can be descriptive and prescriptive, it also shows us the error of man. And so when we read in the Old Testament about Abram or anyone else having multiple wives or multiple concubines, that is not a license to say that was God's will. That was not God's will. And every time we see a man having multiple wives, there was always problems. Don't think about it, fellas. There's always problems. And so a problem is about to arise in this story. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6, your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that, that is beside the road of Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will too be numerous to count. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Ro. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Jesus, we just come to you, Lord, in this moment, asking that as we expound on your word, God, that you would reveal to us your truth, that you would reveal to us, God, whatever it is you want to share. God, help us not to just have ears today, but help us to have eyes to see you for who you are, for you are the God who sees. Amen. This phrase, I see you, I see you, is just like eye contact. It has so many connotations. I want you to think about uh, someone saying that to you. Maybe you've heard someone say, I see you in an angrily tone. I see you. I see you over there. Maybe when I said I see you, you thought of it as a counselor, someone who's kind and compassionate saying, I see you. Maybe you got the picture of someone real creepy like, I see you. <laughs> when I hear I see you, I immediately think of like me and my boys. You know, I got my friend June. He's our production lead. He's in the production booth. June comes in to work all the time. He just looks fresh. He always like dress nice, nice shoes. So I always come up to him like, okay, okay, I see you. When we come to the text today, I want you to think about God saying, I see you. Now, if we know that God sees us, then we also have to understand he doesn't just see you, but he sees what's inside of you. It's important to know God has placed something inside of you. For Hagar, he gave her a child. He gave her a legacy. He gave her a lineage that would come to pass, that would be numerous, just as the same promise he gave to Abram, uh, and Sarah. And so God has placed something inside of you. And today our goal, the mission that we are on is to see God and to allow him to see us. But maybe you're like, hey, pastor, you know what? I've been living life 
feeling unseen and unloved? Have you been walking around feeling unseen and unloved? Maybe you're here today and you feel unseen by your friends. They just don't understand it. They don't get why you act a certain way or they don't get how hard your life is. They can't seem to connect with you to truly understand your struggles. Maybe you're in here and you feel unseen by your family. You got 20 people living up in the house, but you feel all alone, all by yourself, and no one gets it. Maybe you're a mom in this place, and you feel unseen by your kids. They don't see your sacrifice. They don't see your commitment. They don't see how hard you work to keep the house clean or keep them fed or to bless them with the, with the provision that you have from your job. They don't see it. Last night, my wife and I were with some friends, and and this mom shared, she, they have five kids, so we gotta pray for them, but she said, she said, I haven't slept through the night in seven years. I was like, oh my goodness, the sacrifice, the commitment. Are you here today feeling unseen? Maybe you're sitting next to the person that you feel the most unseen by, and it's your spouse. They don't understand. You haven't been able to connect. You keep butting heads because you don't feel seen, and they don't feel seen, but yet you're there together and it's the two of you. Are you feeling unseen and unloved? Because the enemy would love for you to feel unseen by others. Because if you feel unseen by others, you might believe the lie that you're unseen by God. Hagar is in this place where she's between being the slave of a woman who mistreats her and the wife of a man who won't fight for her. She's between being a slave and being mistreated and being a wife for a man who's like, I don't want anything to do with her. She felt unloved. She felt unseen. And this act of feeling unseen led her to flee to the desert. Have you been living life feeling unseen? Maybe you've been so much in the dark that it's become part of your identity. It's become something you grasp to. You don't want people to notice you. Maybe the last two years and wearing a mask and being indoors and not seeing other people, you've begun to adopt this ideal that no one sees you, no one knows you, no one understands you. The Bible says that Hagar was treated harshly. She was mistreated by Sarai. That word is the same word that is used to describe how the Egyptians treated the Israelites. She was punished. She was treated with cruelty. She was, she was oppressed in this place. She was not noticed, not seen. She wasn't even considered to be asked to sleep with Abram or to marry Abram. It was just decided. Sarai said, here you go, take my slave. She had no choice in the matter. See, what happens to you and I when we feel unseen, we feel powerless. We feel we have no say in our life. We have no say in what happens to us. No one understands it whatsoever. And I thought of this picture that I've been guilty of so many times, and maybe you can relate, but maybe you found yourself in the car at one point at a stoplight, and while you're there at the stoplight, you see a brother or a sister that's begging for money on the side of the road. Now, maybe there are times where you have some cash, and so you'll open your window, and you'll give them some cash, but maybe there's times that you don't, and I know I've been guilty of this. When I have nothing to give, I just keep my hands on the wheel, and I just look straight ahead and I don't make any eye contact, and I don't acknowledge, and I don't look that way because I got nothing again. I'm just focused on this red light. I'm not going anywhere. When the greatest thing that that person could receive from you is not money, it's recognition. 
it's seeing their struggle. It's seeing their pain. It's giving them the the dignity to say, I'm going to see and look at your life right where you're at right now. I've had other times, though, and you can't judge me. I was at Wingstop late at night, and I'm picking up some Wingstop, and as I get in my car, a man approaches me asking me for money. Now, I didn't have a lot of money. I had like just, just change in my car, so I just gave him whatever change I had. But then I began to do something different than I did previously. I just began to talk to him. I got his name. His name was Daryl. And we talked for about five to 10 minutes. And at the end of that exchange, he was not happy because I gave him the little change I had. He was happy and he was encouraged and blessed because I talked to him. I looked him in the eyes. I shook his hand. I prayed for him. See, there's a power in being seen, and there's a depravity in living in a life where we're unseen. Has feeling unseen led you to flee? Flee your marriage. Flee the relationship with your children. Flee your workplace. Flee from church to church because you don't feel seen by the people of God. Has feeling unseen led you to flee to the desert? Because when we feel unseen, We feel unloved, and when we feel unloved, we don't feel like we exist. Much like Hagar, the enemy knows that there's something inside of you. There was life in her. There was legacy in her. And if he can get you and I through feeling alone, isolated, and unseen to go to a desert, he knows we can't give birth to that thing. He knows we can't bring life to that thing. The enemy knows there's something inside of you, so he wants you to wander into the desert. But oh, do I have good news for us today, that though we might feel unseen, that though we might feel unrecognized or unnoticed, maybe we even can relate to Hagar's story and feel unloved, we serve a God who sees. A God who sees your location, a God who sees your situation, and a God who sees your solution. Come on, can we give God praise for that? He sees your location. He sees exactly where you are today. The Bible says that Hagar was found by God by a spring in the desert. To be found by God does not mean God just happened to be wandering in the desert and tripped up and was like, oh, Hagar, what you doing here? He didn't bump into her at the line at Target. No, no, no. God was searching for her. He was looking for her, a slave someone who had ran away, someone who had did something that she shouldn't have, he was looking for her. He was seeking for her. And I want to tell you, God is seeking for you. God is searching for you. He knows your location. He's got the pin to where your GPS has you. And he is looking for you. He wants to find you and he wants you to be found. God sees your location. That means he knows the location or the circumstances of relationships, of strife that you might have in your life. He knows where you're at today. That's important to know. God's not oblivious. He knows it. He knows it. He knows it. He's heard it. He's seen it all. And so he is searching for you. See, what can happen to you and I, and I notice this working with young people so much, is when we become lost and we've been wandering for so long, we're not just lost physically. We become Like, we're lost to ourselves. We don't even know who we are. We don't know what we ought to believe. We don't know what we ought to think. We're just completely and utterly lost. And it's in that moment, in that place, 
where God sees your location and he comes to visit you. You might feel invisible by others, but you're important to God. You're important to the one who created you. This moment that Hagar has with God is, is powerful because it's the first time in our text that she's actually called by her name. Hagar is the slave of Sarai, and though she was a slave, does not mean she shouldn't have the dignity of being called by her name. But in Sarai's desperation, in her need for wanting to have her son to be able to have a child and there to be a lineage, she says, hey, take my slave girl. Not even given the dignity of being called by her name. But to make matters worse, after Abram marries her, makes him his, uh, her wife, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, Sarai complains, she gets upset, and he says, you know what, take your slave girl and do whatever you want with her. Think about the, the shame, the hurt that Hagar had to be experiencing in that moment. Abram, you just, like, you just married me. We just conceived a child and you won't even give me the dignity as you dismiss me to use my name. When God comes to meet with us at our location, the way we feel seen first is he calls us by name. No one uses her name, but the God of the universe uses her name. Hagar, what are you doing here? Where are you going? The power of a name. I know there's someone here you've been struggling, feeling unseen, but if you haven't been, can I empower you? God wants to use you to help other people feel seen. Use their name. In the youth ministry, I joke about this all the time. There's a lot of people, we got to learn everyone's names. I'm horrible at names. I just give people nicknames. Like, there's some kids in youth ministry, I don't know their real name. I just know the name I give them. Like, there's a girl named Jelly. I know her real name, but I call her Jelly. There's a girl named Asul. There's all these different nicknames, Stripes. I just have all these names because I'm like, you're, you're laughing, but I'm serious. I just, I give nicknames because it's the only way I can try to remember people's name because I know if, and they know, if I can remember their name, and when I see them next week and I'm like, oh, Jelly, how you doing? They feel different. They feel special to know I remembered their name, that I cared enough. You and I have the power week in and week out when you meet somebody new or you saw somebody lift their hand saying they're new here. I would challenge you, man, go find them right after service, introduce yourself, get to know their name. And when they come to church on Tuesday, call them by their name. It means something and it helps us to feel seen. So Hagar finally gets called by her name when God sees her location. The second thing that the Lord sees is he sees your situation. He sees your pain. He sees your pain. He's seen your tears. He's seen the hardship, the struggle. He's seen the wrestling that you've had. He's seen the sin cycle that you might find yourself. He's seen the hopelessness, whatever it might be that you've been going through. He sees the doubt. He sees the unforgiveness in your heart. God sees your situation. He sees the thing that is draining you, that is not life-giving to you, but he wants to address it. The text teaches us that he asks Hagar two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Now, why is that important? When it comes to having a problem, sometimes people just want to give us the solution. Hey, my car's broke down. 
hey, let me fix it. Okay, you're good to go. But God's not just about giving solutions. God's about understanding your story. So God, in this desert, in this place, decides to just have a sit-down moment with Hagar. He's like, you know what? I see you in this place. You fled for some reason. He knows the reason. He knows all things. But yet, he asks her the question. Hey, where have you come from? Where have you come from? And where is it that you're going? You know how people feel seen when you ask them about their story? When you ask them, how did they get to this place? When you ask them about their life, you're invested in it, you want to know? Just think about the people on your row. Each person represents a different story, a miracle of God, of how they got to this place. Maybe they just wandered in. Maybe a friend invited them. Maybe God healed them of a disease, and so they have fully committed their life to God. But your row is compiled with so many miraculous stories. And what's so encouraging to me is that in the desert, when Hagar is scared, she's on the run, she's pregnant with a child by herself. In that place, God's not like, let me just fix it. He's like, let me just sit down with you and let's talk. Let me hear your story, not the story that Abram would say, not the story that Sarai would say. I want to hear the story that you would say. Tell me your version of what happened to you, Hagar. And so she says, well, I was mistreated by Sarai, and so I fled. This act of asking people about their story, I want to encourage you. God has given you a story, and you need to share it with other people. You need to testify about it. You need to let people see the God in you and the work that he has been doing through you. God sees the situation. He sees what's happening. And what happens is when God conversates with us, we don't just feel seen in our situation, we feel known. Oh, to be known is to be loved. To be known by God is to be loved by God. He sees exactly where you are. But God also does see the solution. It's so funny, he tells Hagar, you know, Hagar, the, the solution to this is you're gonna go back and you're gonna submit to Sarai. That is not what we wanted to read. That's not the advice we want to hear. God, I got to go back? I left for a reason. Lord, they were mistreating me. God, I wasn't loved. I wasn't seen. You want me to go back to that place? Yeah, I want you to go back, and I want you to submit to Sarai. Now, God's solutions are not always our solutions. But I do believe God is calling you to go back to resolve something. Maybe God is calling you to go back to your marriage. Maybe God is calling you to go back to your children. Maybe he's calling you to go back to that brother or sister in Christ that you've been at odds with or that you've been gossiping about or that you've been uh, separated from because of some kind of conflict. God is calling us back to the situation. And he says for her to submit. Now, him saying to submit is not her submitting because she's a slave. But he can say to Hagar, I need you to submit to Sarai because you first have surrendered to me. She surrendered to God, and now he's providing the solution. Did you notice God asked her two questions and she only gave one response? She did not answer the second question. She did not answer the question about where she was going because she did not know. Much like you and I, God, I don't know where I'm going. I need you to show me the solution. I need you to show me the steps to take. I believe Hagar was in a place where she had no vision, no direction, no guidance for what was next, that she felt like, 
I can't even answer this question. But think about it. God knew if she is a woman not belonging to a husband, not belonging to any family, pregnant with a baby, living in a desert, that is a death sentence at this time. There's no provision. There's no food. But if she could surrender to God and go back to the place where she was once unseen, but now changed, her child would be raised in this environment. Her child would be able to have food. She would be taken care of and tended to. And so part of this solution process is us being surrendered, truly surrendered to God, truly in submission to what he would have for us. Because here's the reason why we can do it, even though it might be hard, even though it might be a challenge, is because he is the God who sees me. He is the God who sees me. The Hebrew word for that is El Roi. He is the God who sees. We can submit, we can surrender, we can go back because he is the God who sees. He gives her a promise. Your son Ishmael, which means God hears, because he said, I have heard your misery. Your son Ishmael, his descendants will be numerous. What he said is, you have a future. There's hope. There's going to be life. You're going to live, and your son is going to live. But she didn't respond to this promise with praise. She responded by giving God a name. This is the only time in the Bible that we see that someone else gave God a name. Imagine that kind of conversation. Imagine that level of vulnerability and God knowing her and seeing her and understanding her and hearing her so much so that she's not shouting like, woo! She's saying, God, oh, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who knows me. God sees you in this place. And now he wants to take her from a place that she was known by being unseen and unloved, but now she's going back, not empty-handed, but she has a promise from God. Now she's going back. Now God wants to send us back where we once thought impossible to be seen, and now you will be seen, and now you'll be loved. Why? Because he sees you. Why? Because he's given you a promise. He is Elroy, the God who sees. Not only does he see us, but she says in verse 13, that she sees him seeing her. Now check this out. I said it in the first service, my wife was here. I can tell the real story now because she ain't here. But when me and my wife were in college and we met, she'll try to deny this. There's always a debate when we talk about this, but whatever. I remember the first time I caught her eyes. Like I just saw her in passing and I was like, Lord, could it be? And so over the next couple of days and couple of weeks, I learned her route. Like I knew what classes she was going to and I knew where to be. And I just happened to be, you know, right outside the door of where she had to go. And we would have to make this eye contact. I remember this. She tries to deny this, but it's so true. I remember sitting in a class because while I was studying her path, she was also studying my route. And I was sitting in class and you know, to the, the, the door, the, in the door to a classroom, there'll be that little window, just a little window. I'm sitting in class, I look out that window and I see her looking and we lock eyes. There's something beautiful and special when you see somebody else seeing you. Like when you notice somebody is noticing you, you're like, oh, okay, all right, I saw you, I saw you seeing me and I was seeing you and we get excited about it and look, we've been married five years and we got two kids. Eye contact, fellas, it works. 
but he's a God who sees and that she was able to see him seeing her. This beautiful exchange that Hagar had is available for you and I where, where we could see God and he'll search us out and he sees us and we have this exchange with him where he wants to conversate with us and he wants to talk about the pain. He wants to talk about the solution. He wants to talk about the promise that he has for you and I. But you have to watch this. She gave God the name. You're the God who sees me. She had to make a confession from her heart and with her mouth. You are the God who sees me. What is the name you've been giving God? Is he the God of judgment to you? Is he the God of disappointment? Is he the God of abandonment? Is he the God of, of not being able to see you? Is he the God of unforgiveness? Is he the God of, of, of lack of love? Is he the God of hate? Is he the God of fear? See, maybe your circumstance has led you to give God the wrong name. But we can learn from Hagar, he is the God who sees. Oh, what a feeling it is to be seen by God. I feel like I gotta say that just a few more times so somebody can get it. If God sees you, that means you can walk through conflict. If God sees you, that means you can walk through pain. If God sees you, that means you can go through suffering. If God sees you, that means you can endure a little bit longer. He sees you and he cares and his heart is moved to compassion. Remember I told you God not only sees you, but he sees what's inside of you. Us getting this revelation is imperative to what is to come in the future. When you understand that God sees you, it changes the way you raise your children. It changes the perspective they'll have. Maybe you've been in a family that for generations, people have just gone unseen. Depression has been rampant. Suicidal thoughts. Feeling like God doesn't notice or God doesn't care or God can't help. But if you catch the revelation that Lord, you see me, it can change the ripple effect that will be felt for generations to come. Would you all stand with me to your feet? You know, we have an opportunity today in this place. When it comes to the reading of God's word, it, it prompts us to, to respond. It prompts us to make a step of faith, to make a commitment, to make a to come closer, to draw near to God. And I don't know everyone's story in here, but I know Hagar's story. And I know that in her feeling unseen, forgotten, and left, rejected, that God found her. And if he did it for Hagar, he could do it for you. Would you just close your eyes with me? Maybe you're in this place and you feel lost. You feel like you've had to be on the run because you've been mistreated. You've had to be on the run because you've been unseen. You've been treated like a slave. You've been treated less than. But today you want to be found by God. Or maybe you find yourself saying, Lord, I need some solutions. I need some help. I need a promise to cling to. I need help surrendering, Lord, so that I can submit to my situation, trusting you through it, that you will be faithful to your promise.